Good morning. Read along with me as we uh, read from John 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks... He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to take him and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? God, help us to realize what we're about to uh, partake in, what we've already heard this morning, your word being read, being able to worship you this morning. God, help us to take out of our minds everything that's happened this week, everything we're going to do the rest of today. The rest of this week, help us to be here in the present with you. God, I pray that you may speak to each one of us this morning about your word and what you would have us understand and apply to our lives from this text this morning, how it applies to our church. I pray that you may use me to effect, effectually present your word in a way that glorifies and honors you. God, we thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for your love, for your patience with us. God, help us not to just be going through the motions, but to actually take time and spend time with you this morning as we look at your word. We thank you for all the many ways you have blessed us. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. As you read through the four Gospels, there's only one miracle that you'll find in every one of these four Gospels, and that is the miracle we read this morning, the feeding of the 5,000. So it's interesting that it's in each of these four Gospels, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but as I read the text and preparing this week, there, there was one 
overriding theme that I wanted to look at as a church this morning. Our text this morning is John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, going to verse 15. And before we get into the text, I want to give a little bit of background this morning of where we're going and what we're getting into. You'll notice in verse 4, if you've just read this for the first time, it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That verse is just kind of thrown in there, and as I was reading it, that was one, when my initial studies, I wrote that verse down of like, why is that there? It's just kind of put out there. It doesn't really seem at first glance to tie in with the rest of the story, but it's important for us to understand. It's estimated that there were more people traveling during this time because of the Passover than there would have been in the cities. We see Jesus doing a lot of miracles in the cities, but here he actually has a crowd of 5,000 men, up to 20,000, including women and children, on the roads with him. So it's estimated there were more people traveling than there were in the cities because everyone was headed to Jerusalem to observe Passover. That's why that verse 4 is there, because if you wouldn't have verse 4, you'd wonder, why are there so many people on the roads? And Scripture is just giving us a historical account of what was happening. So Jesus probably picked up more and more people following after him, listening to his teachings day by day on his journey. So I want to first look at the outcome that we find in this miracle, and we find it in verses 14 and 15. So let's take a look there. We're going to start with the outcome of this miracle. Verse 14 says this, When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said to him, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Often in the scriptures we see signs, miracles, and wonders are given to authenticate that someone actually is from the Lord. When you read in the Old Testament, you see this in the Old Testament, and we read this with Jesus, and we also see it with the apostles in the New Testament. Individuals were given special abilities to perform signs, healings, and miracles. The demonstration of these signs, healings, and miracles were to show the people this person was from the Lord. You should listen to this person. We see in verse 2, a large crowd was following Jesus. Why? Because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. We need to understand when we are reading God's word and we see that people are following someone and it says because of a sign, that is not a compliment. It's not a good thing. It should actually raise red flags in our mind because almost all the time people following after a sign, it was looked down upon. It was not a good thing. Jesus preached often against people seeking a sign or following after a sign. In verse 2, we see this large crowd following Jesus because of the signs he was doing. Jesus later in scripture, he says, blessed are those who don't see a sign but choose to follow after me. And in this portion of scripture, they're following after him because of the miracles he was doing. We see that their felt needs were met, their bellies were full, and in that moment, they wanted to make Jesus king. Later in John chapter 6, the very same chapter, we see Jesus turn to this crowd who wanted to make him king. He turns to the crowd, he says some hard sayings, and what it means to truly follow after Christ, and where do the people go? They turn away, and they go back to what they were doing. This is the same crowd who wanted to make him king, and then Jesus turns and says some things, and then 
a large number of the people fall away. What we need to understand here is this happens today as well in our culture. It doesn't take long for you to be in the faith any length of time. You've probably seen people profess Christ as their Savior, and within a short amount of time, what happens? They turn their back. They go back to their old lifestyle. They adopt new philosophies or ideas that are completely unbiblical. And at first, this may be very discouraging when we see this happen. Maybe we've been spending time with someone or we've invited someone to church or we're working with a teenager or something like that. And it seems that they're going great. And then they go back to the world. And I want to encourage us in this moment because this is something Jesus dealt with. It's not our fault. It's just the nature of man. What happens so many times? People love the things of the world. And Jesus was dealing with this. He had to deal with it in his ministry. And as a church, one thing we can see from this text is just because someone speaks well about a Jesus doesn't mean they actually worship the Jesus. And that's exactly so many times what happens in our culture today. People are speaking well of a Jesus and they find a Jesus or they see a Jesus from the scriptures that they've read or they have not read. And then they make a Jesus that suits them and their lifestyles. In Connect Group this week, you're going to talk about some of the Jesuses that you've seen worshipped in your life and others' lives that you know. But the warning here is that people often can get excited about something that's completely unbiblical and call it biblical. For instance, there's a belief in Jesus in our culture where Jesus Christ never speaks a harsh word. Where Jesus is not going to judge anybody. Right? There's a belief in that type of Jesus. There are those who worship the Jesus in our day that's all about white supremacy. There are those who worship a Jesus in our day that it's all about black supremacy. What an unbiblical mischaracterization of what Jesus came to do. There are those who worship a Jesus who they think is satisfied or accepting of alternative lifestyles, or for man to simply choose what he wants to do, that Jesus is going to be accepting of all things. There is a worship of a Jesus today that is anti-America. There's a worship of Jesus today that is pro-America. There are those who hold Jesus as the icon for a utopia, socialism, or capitalism. They take Jesus and they fit it in to whatever mold they want to have. There, is, there are those who see Jesus as a means for social or economical gain. None of these things are in the scriptures. So we need to be careful, church. Be on our guard. A worship of something they call Jesus is not always true worship of Christ himself. I want us to look back in John chapter 6, and I want us to see what happened and some of the implications we can learn from this miracle. So we've seen so far the large crowd following after Jesus because of the Passover. And as we read through John 6, verses 1 through 15, and when I read it, I couldn't get out of my mind that it so resembled what the church is. This miracle looks just like the church should look in so many ways. And so my sermon title this morning is Feeding the 5,000, a Picture of the Church. Feeding the 5,000, a Picture of the of the church. This morning, I want to compare how the process of Jesus feeding the 5,000 should parallel us functioning as a church that gives God glory. 
To begin, I want to look at a couple parallels that we see between a church and actually what the disciples were doing here. To begin with, we see Jesus is the one leading both. He should be leading the church. He's the head of the church, and he was also leading the disciples. Colossians 1.18, and he, Christ, is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Christ is both leading both parties. Secondly, we see Jesus working with needy people. We as a church are needy people. Amen? If you didn't say amen, you just don't know it yet, right? But we are needy people. All of us are needy people. We need each other, but we need Christ. And so Jesus is leading us, but we are needy people. He's the head of the church. But he's also, in this illustration, he's working with needy people. This crowd was needy. The disciples were needy. Three, the disciples faced a problem. Just like the church today faces problems. Another illustration that we see is Jesus could have easily fixed the problem himself. But he didn't. And the church today is facing problems. And Jesus could easily fix all the problems the church faces on the earth today. Do we see this? He can fix it if he wants to. But he's not in the way we often think. Just like in this miracle, he could have easily fixed it. But we see in verse 5, it says, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Jesus had a purpose for everything he did. Jesus saw the people. They were hungry. They had been listening to him teach, following him all day, and Jesus wanted them to be fed. John Calvin wrote this, But as the flesh solicits us to attend its conveniences, we ought likewise to observe that Christ on his own accord, takes care of those who neglect themselves in order to follow after him. For he does not wait until they are famished and crying out, perishing of hunger and have nothing to eat, but he provides food for them before they've even asked it. So Jesus could have stood up and he could have performed a miracle for this problem. He could have had manna fall from heaven. Problem would have been fixed. Or he could have just stood up and made a proclamation. Just like Jesus can command winds and waves to be still, couldn't Jesus have just stood up and said, be satisfied? And everyone would have been satisfied. And they would have all looked to Jesus. I mean, if I was thinking, how can I be most glorified as Jesus? It seems like that would have been the way for me to stand up. Everyone's looking at me. I'm going to make a proclamation, be satisfied. And everyone, all of a sudden, their their hunger pains are gone. But instead, Jesus turns to Philip and says, where are we going to buy some bread so that these people can eat? Why did Jesus do that? Well, I think he did it the same reasons why he does it today in the church. Jesus put the ball in Philip's court. We saw earlier in John If you remember, Philip was from this area. So Philip, this was his home court. He had the home court advantage. He knew the places to eat, right? He knew what food was available. He knew how far away it was. And so Jesus asking him, he probably would have been excited to be able to be used. Philip answers in verse 7, 
200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each one of them to even just get a little. This answer may seem simple at first, but when you think about what it took to calculate this answer, it was really, it was really an in-depth answer. First, he would have needed to know how many people there were. 5,000 men. That means that there were women and children as well, but that was just 5,000 men. So there could have been 15,000, 20,000 people. To count that would have taken a large amount of time. It would have been a task. So Jesus turning to him, it wasn't like Philip just came up on the spot, 200 denarii. Maybe that's what they had, but he still had to calculate, all right, if all we have is 200 denarii, which was about a day's wage, so that's 200 days worth of working. So maybe that's what they had in their bank account or with them. They would have had to calculate, well, broken up between 5,000 or 10,000 people, how much would each person have gotten? And so he took a lot of time. We need to see that Philip was educated. He was logical. He used his brain. He looked at the situation. He assessed it correctly. We've all heard it said that a failure to plan is a plan to what? Fail. The problem with that statement is that Philip had a plan. But in all of Philip's perfect calculations, Philip made the largest of errors. And it's our first point, what we can learn this morning. Philip calculated a plan without Christ. Philip calculated a plan without Christ. A plan without Christ is no plan at all. It's a bad plan. I think many of us, including myself, probably would have done what Philip did. We would have been excited to serve. Jesus was asking me. I mean, Philip had seen him do a lot of other things, but this time he's asking Philip to do something. And Philip knows the area. Philip was smart, so he jumped, he calculated, he worked, he did his best to fix the problem. And I'm sure many of us are probably thinking, all right, let's help Philip out a little bit. Let's give him an out, all right? The problem is Philip was with Jesus when he did all those other miracles that we've already went through, the water into wine, the Samaritan town all coming to Christ, Jesus healing the official son about to die, Jesus healing the paralyzed man. Philip was there. And so he doesn't have an excuse because he witnessed those things. But here he's calculating a plan without Christ. Philip being anxious to be used and to serve, he had the right motives, but he overlooked his greatest asset by only looking at material things. Just like Nicodemus, His eyes were set on the physical. He wasn't looking at the spiritual. I wonder, church, how often you and I overlook what God can and wants to do in our life because we focus on the spiritual or on the physical rather than the spiritual, just like Philip did. I want you to think, how often do we calculate plans without Christ? How often do we do that? We are so abundantly blessed That it's easy to be overwhelmed with an abundance of things to do based on our material possessions that we have. We have finances, we have education, and because of that, often we don't factor God into our calculations. We should learn from Philip that there's a great danger of trusting in our education. There's a great danger of trusting just in our money. A question for you this morning. Are you calculating a plan for your family and how to lead your family without Christ. 
if someone could go into your home and observe you on a day-to-day basis, is how you run your family, how you lead your wife, how you lead your children, how you teach them, is it based on material possessions, education, wisdom of the world, or is Christ factored in? Does Christ desire to be calculated into your business? Many of you who work, you have a business plan. You have somewhere you're trying to get in the next six months, one year, three years. Where is Christ calculated into this? Christ desires to be. Just like Philip, we have a tendency to say, well, I know God can do miracles, but I'm in a situation right now that I'm facing where he's outside of that. Just like Philip, he, he looked at all these other things. He calculated a plan without Christ. Well, I know that God does miracles, but what I'm facing right now in my marriage, that's outside of what God does. Or I know God does miracles, but what I'm facing right now with my finances, God doesn't, God doesn't work that way. I mean, so many times we have our own little situations and we, we factor it all out without Christ. And we act like he can't be involved because... I don't know why. I mean, we just have a tendency to try to do it ourselves, just like Philip. This is a lesson we can learn from Philip as a church. We must calculate Christ into all of our circumstances. Next, I want us to look at the boy. There's three characters in this story. We've already looked at Philip. Now we're going to look at the boy. Look in verse 9. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? We can assume this boy was rather poor from the description that we're given him. This conclusion can be made by the quantity of bread he has in comparison to fish. He has five pieces of bread, but only two small fish. These are not big fish. These are small little sardine-like fish. So his lunch consisted of mostly bread. But we can also make a conclusion that he's poor by the quality of the bread. So the quantity but also the quality. William Barclay notes, barley bread was the kind of bread prescribed by the Mishnah as a meal offering for the sin of adultery. Because, says the Mishnah, adultery is the sin of a beast and barley is the food of beast. So barley was the type of food that you fed the pigs. And his lunch consisted mostly of the food you fed the pigs. Barclay goes on and says, the fish would have been no bigger than sardines. Pickled fish from Galilee were known all over the Roman Empire. In those days, fresh fish was an unheard of luxury, for there was no means of transporting it any distance, keeping it in eatable condition. Small sardine-like fish swarmed in the Sea of Galilee. They were caught and pickled. So he had pickled fish to help the bread go down. So this is the resources available. Maybe some of you can relate to this boy. You know you're blessed, but you live paycheck to paycheck. You don't feel like you're rich. You don't have a lot. And oftentimes when we don't feel like we have a lot, what ends up happening is we feel like we have nothing to offer the Lord. We think, well, if I had lots of this, I had lots of time. I had lots of money. Maybe if I was retired, maybe if I was a millionaire, maybe if I was super educated, then I could do something for the Lord. 
But that's not a picture we see here. We see this small boy who has a meal consisting of mostly bread, and this was the bread that you fed the pigs. And what happens is we don't think we have much to offer. Maybe you relate to this boy. So a lot of times what we do is we give nothing at all or very little because we don't think we have much to give. We need to understand the Lord desires to use what we have because of its insignificance. It's because of the insignificance the Lord wants to do something with it. I love what Pastor James Montgomery Boyce says. The point of the story is that the insufficient from the hands of the insignificant became sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. The account of feeding of the 5,000 is incredible because Christ did the impossible, and here's the key word, with almost nothing. Almost nothing. He could have done it with nothing. He could have stood up and made a proclamation, but he decided to do it with almost nothing, which when you brought almost nothing to Jesus became something incredible, which is what it looks like in the church. We bring our almost nothing to church, to each other. We give it to the Lord, and the Lord does incredible things with it. That's what it means to be a body of Christ. Do we see how this applies to the church today? What we can gather from this is there is no room in the kingdom of God for us to come as Christians and to say, I need to grow a little bit more in my knowledge of God before I serve him. But that's often what we hear. I need to grow a little bit more before I do something. We can't come to that conclusion from text like this. There is no room in the kingdom to say, I need to grow more in my faith towards God before we serve him and get involved. We can't say any of these things because we don't see it in the text. There's no room in the kingdom of God for us to say, I just want to gain a little bit more in my bank account or my retirement account, or I want to become retired or my 401k needs to look like this before I give more. Because that's not a picture we see in the scriptures. God wants us to give out of our insignificance because it's not about us. It's all about him for his glory. God calls us to give in spite of our shortcomings. This is what the young boy did. The insufficient from the hands of the insignificant, that's us, becomes sufficient and significant when given to Christ. Here's a practical illustration of how this happens every Sunday morning. What we're going to take in a little bit is all of us at the end of service, just like we do every Sunday, we give an offering of our tithes and our offerings to the Lord. The only reason this is happening this morning, the only reason we can worship on Sunday, the only reason we can do ministry throughout the week is because of what takes place on Sunday. Each of us giving a little to the Lord, some more than others because others are differently blessed. But we all give, even if you think it's insufficient, and because we give to the body, Christ is able to do everything he does. Another illustration, when we have a potluck Sunday, you bring what was insufficient for you and your family to eat. One dish, right? You're not all sitting around after church eating a dish of macaroni and cheese as a meal. It was insufficient for you, insufficient for your family, but you bring it, and suddenly what was insufficient for you and your family becomes sufficient not just for you, not just for your family, but for the whole rest of the church. This is exactly how ministry happens. 
And it's the lesson we're taught in the feeding of the 5,000. We bring our insignificant little bits we have, we offer them to the Lord. Because it's all for God's glory. This is how ministry happens in the church. This is how children's ministry happens. It's how prayer ministry happens. Just like the small boy, he was poor and insignificant. There are those of you who think you have nothing to offer the Lord. You can't leave this place with that conclusion in your mind. The Lord wants to use your gifts, your talents, your resources, and your finances in spite of how great you think they are. Secondly, what we learn from this, and we learn it from the boy, is faithfully serving the Lord is rarely based on large quantities of anything. Often in the church, we think it has to be this much to do something with, but what we see from the boy is faithfully serving the Lord is rarely based on large quantities of anything. The Lord gives to each of us in different measures. This is the lesson we learn from the boy. But there's a third character that I want us to see, and his name is Andrew in this story. And I desire every single one of us in this church to be Andrew. And here's why. Let's take a look at what Andrew did. Let's look in verse 8. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? In contrast, Philip looked at the situation. He came away hopeless. He said, given what I see, we can't do it. We don't have enough. He left God out of the picture. But Andrew looked at the situation with a different set of eyes. Andrew began looking around for those who had the resources that were needed, despite how big or little they were. Andrew didn't have any food, but he went to find those who did. Here's what we can learn from Andrew. Christians take ownership of every need in the church. What it means to be an Andrew, what it means should, to be a Christian, to be part of a family means when there's a need, I'm taking ownership of that need. And if I can't fill the need, I'm going to go find people who can fill the need. Andrew brought those who had the resources to Christ. He was always finding people, connecting them back to Christ. Maybe someone was Andrew in your life, and they saw something in you that you didn't see, and they pursued you, and they connected you to church, and they began teaching you because they saw a gift, or they saw something that could be used by God. We need to be doing that to others, the same as people have done to us. So here's an example of what our church would look like if everyone was an Andrew. Let's say there's a ministry volunteer position that needs to be filled. But you're already serving somewhere in the church during that time, right? Because we're all serving. So there's a ministry position that needs to be filled, but you can't fill it because you're already busy that hour. So to be Andrew would be going around and finding people who have the ability or the resources or the talents and plugging them into ministry. And if every single one of us were doing that, our church would be expanding and growing and supporting one another, encouraging one another. We wouldn't have to always be needing volunteers for things. But the sad state of most churches is we need more volunteers, which is sad because Jesus said, I have come to serve, not be served. So the last thing a church should ever need is volunteers. 
Because the number one example Jesus came to share with us is service. It's pretty quiet in here. So this is a lesson of what we need to understand. This is what it means to be like Andrew. That even if we're serving, we're not off the hook. Because we take ownership of ministry positions because all of us are involved. This is all of our families. Christians take ownership of every need in the church. So let's be like Andrew. The young boy was only involved with his lowly lunch because Andrew, who didn't have a lunch, went and found him and brought him to Christ. It is our conviction here at the Family Church that every single member here at the Family Church, you've made a commitment to this body. Every single member should be serving somewhere, doing something. I'll say it again. It is our conviction that every member of our church should be serving somewhere, doing something. To be a Christian, to be involved in a local church, and not be serving is not an example we see anywhere in Scripture. In our latest membership class, we had 20 people there, and I told them, when you have a meeting with some of the pastors, we're going to ask you a question. One of the questions is, where are you going to serve in the church now? Day one, meeting with a pastor, I'm going to ask you the question, where are you going to serve? Where are some places? Give me five that you're looking at serving. Because that's what it means to be part of a body. So we need you to be like Andrew. That even if you're serving, go out and try to find other people. Encourage them. God desires every single one of us here to serve. And not one of us can leave this morning with the excuse of, I just need to, whatever it is. Because the boy had this excuse. Looking around, there's 20,000 people, and he has a couple of pieces of bread and a couple of pieces of fish. He could say, well, I just need to work a little more, get more money, make, have more lunch. But he didn't. And Christ did the rest. Here's a couple of takeaways for us this morning. I want to go back. Don't calculate a plan without Christ. Secondly, faithfully serving the Lord is rarely based on large quantities of anything. The Lord has given each of us and blessed us each in different ways. Some have been given much, some have been given little. But whether you've been given much or little, we're all called to serve faithfully the Lord. Third, Christians take ownership of every need in the church. We need every person to be like Andrew. May we go out and find people to fill in the needs that we see at the church. When you came in this morning, you received a bulletin. I want you to grab that. Inside the bulletin, we have an insert here. There's 17 ministry positions that we need filled. There's actually more than this, but we didn't want to overwhelm you. So we just made it one-sided rather than two-sided. But these are immediate ministry positions, just like I shared this morning, that if we had them filled, the church would able, be able to come around and encourage children more and grow children in the Lord. It would also help our volunteers. We wouldn't always have to be seeking people. We could actually focus on ministry. So children's ministry, four people to work in the nursery once a month. So this is a once a month service opportunity. One person 
once a month. Elementary school. You're on for three weeks and then you're off for six weeks. Check in. This is even done just before church. So you can still come to church. But there's children's ministry areas available. There's the well where you can help the well. Though The well is our coffee shop and bookstore. So maybe you have experience in that where you could volunteer before church starts and you could help the well or get here early and make coffee. Technology. Maybe you have an ear for sound or maybe you're good with tech. There's some opportunities there to help mix the sound, to be a presenter for the slideshows. There's ministry opportunities available to be a greeter, part of our prayer ministry. So I encourage you this morning, after hearing what we see with the feeding of the 5,000, how are you going to get involved in the local body? The Lord wants to use you. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, nothing is going to matter except what we have done for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to have a realization that the only reason we exist is for eternity. What is happening? What we're doing for the Lord? Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. If we're living our life not for the church, that means we're not really living eternally minded for Jesus Christ. That's why I opened this morning for us to forget about what's happening in the world and understand some of the priorities. Pursue to invite others in the ministries. If you want to fill out or you want to find how to get involved in some of these ministries, grab the connect card that's part of your bulletin. Just write your name information and write an area where you'd like to serve and you can drop it off in the offering boxes at the end of service. Encourage all of us to get involved. You never know how your difference and what you do is going to make a difference in the lives of others. I want to end with a short story. There's a tale of an old German schoolmaster who every morning he came into his classroom of boys and he would take off his cap and he would bow ceremoniously to his class every morning. And one of the kids asked him one day why he did that. And the man answered, you never know what one of these boys may become someday. He was right because one of these boys was Martin Luther who brought about the entire Protestant Reformation. Because of what he did is why we're here doing this today. So I encourage you to get involved. Be sold out for Christ. Be part of his church. Be like an Andrew. Don't overlook Christ. I hope we hear what the Lord is sharing with us this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. You're so patient with us. God, I know it's hard for me to serve. I know ultimately it goes back for me understanding what you've done in my life, how you've served me. God, I pray that you may give all of us a realization of what you've done for us, how much you have served us, how much you have sacrificed for us, how much you love us and continually love us, how much you have forgiven us. Because God, when we understand what you've done for us, it should radically change what we do for others. I can't have a grateful heart of how you serve me without wanting to serve others. I can't understand and have a realization of how much you love me and not love my family 
and others more. God, I can't have a realization of how much you've forgiven me, all the many ways I've sinned against you and continually sin against you. I can't understand that and live that way with that realization, but still harbor feelings towards other people of ill will. So God, give us a fresh breath of what it means to serve you, to serve in your body. God, I do pray for the ministry positions that we have here at the church. These are ministry opportunities to change lives for eternity. I hope people see that. God, I thank you for the story of the feeding of the 5,000. You could have done it all. You could have done the miracle yourself. You could have made a proclamation, but instead you chose to use individuals just like you choose to use us. It's not because you have to, but it's because we grow in the process. You equip us, and ultimately it brings you more glory. So God, I pray that we may be a church that glorifies you in how we serve one another. We thank you for the opportunity in being able to be part of this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.